0: Today's reading is Daniel 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river, a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed.
1: I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and the most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws. The beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up, before which the three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones, and he will subdue the three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. And then, the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High, and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter, and I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts. My face turned pale but I kept the matter to myself.
2: This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to talk to you this morning about maintaining hope. Maintaining hope. We've just experienced a very uh, polarizing, contentious, and exhausting election. And most of the pollsters and pundits got it wrong. And as a result, many people awakened on Wednesday to various levels of shock and, and fresh uncertainty. Many people were asking throughout this week, what does this mean for the future of our nation, for our children, for immigration, for our global economy, for the balance of power in the world? For many, a wave of uncertainty now clouds the future, making it hard to maintain hope. And that's what I want to talk with you about this morning. I want to talk to you about maintaining hope. What does it mean to be a a people who maintain hope in God? So I'm not specifically talking about, about I'm not talking about how you vote. I'm not talking about what, what party you align yourself with politically. I'm talking about being a people who maintain hope in God, specifically, that Jesus is the world's true king. And how might our conduct, the conduct of our lives, reflect that reality, that Jesus is the world's true king, that our hope is in God? Not just that we think it, but that our lives reflect that. I mean, think about it. If you're honest, does our world look like a place where Jesus is king? Does our nation look like a place where Jesus is king? Does our city look like a place where Jesus is king? It's hard to believe that. It's hard to live as if that is a reality. It's hard to maintain hope in this world. So in light of that, we've been in this Old Testament book of Daniel for some weeks now, so I want to invite you back into Daniel. Uh, The main storyline, for those of you who are new to Grace, is that a group of Israelites have been exiled, have been deported to Babylon after Jerusalem was conquered in the 6th century B.C., And their question, as they are in Babylon, is what does it mean to be loyal? What does it mean to be faithful to God when you're a minority in a culture? In other words, it's a struggle to maintain loyalty to God. It's a struggle to maintain hope in God when you find yourself as a minority in the culture. Why? Because it's easy to to give up on hope when it looks like nothing around you is the way it should be or the way at least you thought it should be. So the whole story is portraying Daniel and his friends as models of what it looks like to be a creative minority. And we've talked about the creative minority in the previous talks. A creative minority is a group of people who find themselves a minority and they neither uh, isolate and withdraw from the culture in order to protect themselves, nor on the other hand do they just assimilate to the culture, uh, giving up, giving in, and going with the flow of the culture. But instead the creative minority remains connected to the culture and remains distinct in order to be able to offer a positive alternative, a positive way forward to the majority culture. So Daniel and his friends are challenged. They are tested repeatedly as to whether they'll remain loyal to God and in their loyalty remain distinct. As a creative minority, so I want to invite you to go to Daniel seven if you're not already there. We're looking at. I decided to extend this series uh, for two more weeks. I was going to just stop at Daniel six, but I really felt with everything that was going on that Daniel seven was a natural, uh, a natural response to the things that we're going through right now in our culture. There's a blue Bible underneath your seat. It's page seven forty four. Grab it and look at the text with me. Don't just sit there and look at me or look around, because chances are you'll probably just drift off into whatever it was you watched last night that you didn't finish watching before you fell asleep, or whatever else might be going on right now in your life. So, page 744 in the Blue Bible, or an app, open up your app. In Daniel 7, we are encountering another dream that parallels the dream of Daniel chapter 2, but this time, it's Daniel's dream. So, thus far in the book of Daniel, we've not had a dream by Daniel himself, but this time, it's Daniel's dream. My approach to this this morning is simply I'm going to give you some background, some overview, maybe what you might call color commentary on this. Uh, I'm not going to be going down and going through every verse and talking about every word and just boring you to death, but I'm just going to kind of light on some things that might help us understand this, and then I'm going to ask the so what question. So what difference might this make for us living as a creative minority in our culture today? All right. So that's the approach today. So first of all, we're going to look at the text together. And the first thing that is important to note is that this is a dream. This is a dream. And dreams play an important role in the biblical narrative. Throughout the Bible, we see dreams and they play an important role. For example, very early on in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 41, there's a dream by Pharaoh in which seven skinny, ugly cows come out of the Nile and they eat up seven really beautiful fat cows. And and the Egyptian pharaoh is so troubled by it, he calls in Joseph to interpret this dream about these cows. If that gets you interested in reading it, uh, be my guest. Oftentimes, dreams in the Bible feature animals, and they function as symbols. But Daniel specifically would have been familiar with with the prophets and their images of beasts that were used throughout the prophetic prophetic writings. In Isaiah 5, uh, behind me, Isaiah five twenty nine to 30, listen to these words. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions they roar. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. Here Isaiah is describing Babylon coming to Jerusalem as God's agent of judgment on God's people for their lack of loyalty to God. And how they described, they're described as a lion that roars and then drags off its prey. I also gave you an image earlier in this series of the Ishtar Gate, and this is from the, the, the big Palace in Babylon. Uh, This was during the time of Nebuchadnezzar II, who was the Nebuchadnezzar of Daniel. And this is in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. I got a chance to stand there, and it's just an impressive, impressive uh, piece of architecture. But if you look at closer at those images on there, here is an image of a winged lion. A winged lion. So the conquering nations of that time would regularly ascribe to themselves images, beastly images, to basically state their power and their ability to oppress people and to conquer nations. And so here, Babylon is choosing to associate themselves with a winged lion. So Daniel's earlier, early readers wouldn't freak out at this dream. They wouldn't dismiss it as silly. And they certainly wouldn't read it like a left-behind novel. Because they had been shaped by the Old Testament scripture. And they had biblical imaginations. Imaginations that had been shaped by the text of the scripture in which they had immersed themselves. So Daniel 7 is also, by way of background, a genre of literature called apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means revelation. Revelation. That's why we named the last book of the Bible The Revelation. It's the Apocalypse. It's apocalyptic literature. Now, in our culture, we largely associate apocalyptic with impending doom. That's why I put the definition up there of apocalyptic. That's why we have a whole genre of movies called apocalyptic movies. So you have way back, going back to Blade Runner and then more recently Mad Max, Uh, and um, Cormac McCarthy's The Road, and there are many others in that genre. But typically, we associate that with some kind of post-nuclear war, a holocaust, or some kind of impending doom that is going to happen. But biblical apocalyptic deals with the end of history. But instead of doom and gloom, it celebrates God's victory. So biblical apocalyptic is associated with God's victory, not doom and gloom. And biblical apocalyptic uses metaphor, it's intended to be read like poetry, and so it reveals meaning by association. So when, when we use the word like a lot in conversation here in Southern California, like punctuates every other three words, but in, when you're talking about English language, you're talking about grammar. When you say it's like, that's a simile. A metaphor is just a direct comparison. But that's, that's how this is supposed to be read. So there's some kind of, there's association going on, and the reader is supposed to pick up on that. So as a result, the images speak truly, but not precisely. And that's one of the problems of many evangelical readings of this apocalyptic literature, is we go in and we want precision, and that, the apocalyptic literature isn't designed to give us precision. So, now to Daniel 7. Daniel 7 rolls back in time to Belshazzar and the emperor, the empire of Babylon, and before the events of Daniel chapter 5, which is Belshazzar's final day on this earth, the content of the dream is very simple. We've heard it read already. Four beasts, very bizarre. It's unlike these beasts are unlike anything in God's creation. They're symbols of force, forces rising up against God's creation. If you're looking down at the text, in verse 7, it mentions a beast that I'm calling the mega-beast because it's unlike any other beast. It has horns growing out of its head, it has, and these horns are symbolic of royal power and strength. Psalm 75, verses 2 to 5 and 10, talk about horns and horns used to symbolize royal power and strength. So again, picking up on scripture that's already there. The fourth beast puts itself in place of God. So taken together, Daniel is dreaming about the kingdom of Babylon. He's dreaming about the kingdoms of the world, and he's wondering if they're going to last forever and if they're going to continue the oppression of God's people. In other words, Daniel is dreaming about, his dream reflects the culture and the world and the time in which he finds himself living. What I'm saying then, if you're kind of starting to doze off on this, is that when you read Daniel 7, Daniel was not being written to wait for us to appear in 2016, so we would say, aha, he didn't know it, but he was writing about us in 2016. Daniel's dream reflects what he was experiencing at that time, and the questions he was raising in his own mind about what was going on t- about the people of God. So if you're w- sitting here wondering why you're listening to someone like me, talk about some kind of a crazy dream that some dude had 2,500 years ago. And you're just sitting there wondering, what does this have to do with anything? Here's why this matters. Here's why this is important. You ready? It's because your life and my life is a story. Your life and my life is a story, just like Daniel was living out a story and this then hooked his story into something larger. For our lives to have meaning and purpose, our life story has to be hooked into, has to tap into a story that's larger than ourself. I'm suggesting to you what I have said from the very beginning of this series, that what we're going through right now and the chaos and the unraveling that we're experiencing in our culture is because this great experiment of modernity that really began in the 1960s and forward has collapsed. It has shown that it is bankrupt. It has nothing to offer us. And that great experiment was that we could live well without God in our culture. And in place of God, a new trinity emerged, which was the self, the state, and capitalism. And so the largest story that we have in our culture, once once the self cannot be the story to sustain the self, think about it, myself is the only story that sustains myself, then you have to reach for a larger story to answer the big questions of life that need to be answered, and that is, who am I? What does it mean to be human, and why am I here? And if you don't have a larger story, and if you're part of this modernity project, then where you naturally turn is to the state. And when the state can't give you that larger narrative, or when the state, in your opinion or in your perspective, fails to provide that larger narrative that you're expecting them to have. Think of what's going on in our culture right now, people going out in the streets and rioting. It's not because of Donald Trump. It's because of the narrative. It's because they have a desire to have a larger narrative, and the larger narrative that they thought they needed to have has failed. The state can never offer a sustaining narrative, a narrative that answers the fundamental questions of who am I, what does it mean to be human, and why am I here? Only a narrative that is larger than ourselves, that comes from outside of ourselves, that is bigger than the state, can begin to do that. And it's that largest narrative that enables us to maintain hope. And that's what Daniel 7 is about. And so in verses 9 to 14, very quickly, it moves to the, the, the dream moves to the courtroom. We see a character, a figure called the Ancient of Days. It's God in his role as judge. In verses 10 to 12, he comes as the king of history, the judge of the beasts. In verses 13 and 14, there's the language of one like a son of man. That is Aramaic for a human or a member of humanity. He's given authority, etc., and that's the end of the dream. In verses 15 and follow, Daniel is troubled. He asks for interpretation. In verse 17, he's told that the four beasts are four kings or four kingdoms. Notice they are not identified, all you people that are out there mapping out who these four kings and kingdoms are on your dispensational eschatological charts. Cease and desist. What is given here to Daniel with this dream is that evil kingdoms will succeed one another until the end of time. Evil kingdoms will succeed each other until the end of time, and the people of God must live in this reality. So, in verse 18, it is mentioned that the saints of the Most High, and those are humans or God's people, and/or they could be angelic beings. And so, it's telling us that behind the earthly struggles that we experience is a cosmic struggle. In Ephesians 6.12, Paul would say that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Meaning that we live in a world that is alive to spiritual powers. We live in a world that is alive to spiritual powers and Daniel is being told that in this dream. In verse 19, Daniel is still troubled by the fourth beast, the horns and the little horn. Why? Because in verses 21, 23, and 25, the people of God are being trampled underfoot. And so he's asking the question, how long will this mega beast be allowed to trample God's people underfoot? Because it's hard to maintain hope when it seems like there's no end in sight to the present dilemma. And Daniel's reassured at the end of the chapter that it won't last forever. God is aware that his people are being trampled underfoot. He cares, he knows, and there will be coming a day when it will end and God will vindicate his people. That's the end. Okay, so now to the so what question very quickly. The so what question. So what difference might this make for for us as a creative minority living in our culture? What difference might this make for us? And I want to offer you two things. The first is this looks are deceiving. First thing I want to offer to you is this, is that looks, looks are deceiving. And what do I mean by that? Evil, human empires, governments, oppression may seem as if it has the upper hand. All that may seem like it has the upper hand, but that's a temporary deception. As we've been seeing throughout Daniel... Can I have the next slide? There we go. In spite of present appearances, God is in control. We're back to that again. In spite of present appearances, God is in control. As we look around our world, and no matter what we see, in spite of what we see, God is in control. God. And this week, I made God really large. God is in control. Okay? Just a reminder that God is in control. And I don't think we can say that enough, and I don't think we can repeat that enough. I suggested to you last week to write that on a 3x5 card or a sticky note and put it up in your, your bathroom so it's the first thing that you see in the morning. Now, having heard that, you might be sitting out there and you might say, well, why should I believe that? Maybe you're cynical like most of Southern California, and you say, why should I believe that? Isn't that just another coping mechanism? I mean, you religious people, you choose your coping mechanisms like everybody else chooses their coping mechanisms. Yours is just religious. Why should anyone believe that? Well, the second so what I want to offer to you is found in Matthew 26. So if you'll turn over to the New Testament to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. And verse 57, that's page 8. 8- 33 in your Bibles. Page 833. Now this is an incident in which Jesus is standing before the most powerful person in Israel, the high priest. And he's surrounded by the religious rulers. And so it's equivalent to Jesus standing before the President, the Supreme Court, and both houses of Congress. And they have trumped up charges against him. False charges against him. Look at verse 59, if you would, please. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. So they've trumped up charges against him. He's standing before them, and Jesus says something that should sound very familiar to us now that we have just been in Daniel 7. He uses the language of what? The Son of Man. See it there? He identifies with the Son of Man. Jesus is quoting Daniel 7. Before the high priest, before all the religious rulers. Now, so that you get the impact of this. This would be like me dressing up in a black cape with a black mask and a lightsaber and going to Comic-Con and walking around to people and going, I am your father. (laughs) Who would I be, right? Darth Vader, right? That's easy, okay? And anybody that's at Comic-Con would know that, especially if you're a Star Wars nerd. All the Star Wars nerds would get that right away, that this is who I am and this is what I'm doing. Well, Jesus is in a room of Bible nerds. <laughs> They've memorized the Old Testament. And Jesus cites to Daniel 7 to the high priest, and he says this to him. The moment that you indict me, the moment that you condemn me, is the moment that the Son of Man... The Son of Man is vindicated and enthroned. Whoa. It is. It makes total sense of why the high priest tears his robes and says, that's blasphemy. Because what is Jesus doing? He's associating himself with the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. He's saying that he is a fulfillment of Daniel 7, that he is a true representative of God's people who are being faithful despite oppression as a minority. If Jesus is painting himself as the Son of Man, and that was his most common identity, he didn't go around saying, I am the Christ. He went around saying, I am the Son of Man. If Jesus is saying that he is the Son of Man, then what does that make the high priest? It's like me saying... If I'm saying to you, I am your father, then what does that make you? Luke Skywalker, right? So if he's saying to the high priest, I'm the son of man, what does that make the high priest? The mega beast. And everybody that's in that room is backing the mega beast. And the high priest. Jesus has just called out everybody in the room. And so in Jesus' mind, Daniel 7 And the mega-beast isn't just one single event. It's It's like a set of clothes. It's what humans and human kingdoms put on and become whenever humans exalt themselves over God and make their impulses divine. The result is they become like beasts, individually and collectively. But here's the hopeful thing. We're capable of so much more. Humanity is capable of so much more. Why? Because we are made in the image of God, first of all. But secondly, because the beast has been conquered. See, Jesus believed that he was bringing the vision of Daniel 7 to its climax. Jesus is going to conquer the beast by letting the beast conquer him. Jesus believes the Ancient of Days will vindicate him and God's people and judge evil in the end. So Jesus goes to his death with the confidence that his death is the way to overcome the beast. So the beast-like pride and autonomy and evil can be overcome and people and humanity and society can be restored to true humanity. And you know what, folks? This has already been accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection. The beast has been conquered. And that's what maintains my hope. Doesn't matter what the election results are. Doesn't matter what's going on in the world. I mean, I care about it, but the victory has been won. The victory has been won. And the victory has begun, and it will be realized in its totality one day, completely. And it's in that where I locate my hope. It's in that larger story that maintains my hope and I offer that to you today. Thanks be to God. I want to draw your attention to the communion table this morning that's in front of you. And the reason why we're doing communion today, we did it last week, and typically for those of you who are new to Grace, we do it every other week here at Grace. But someone wrote me an email this week Someone who's part of grace wrote me an email this week and wrote this. And she gave me permission to, to read her email. If there's anything our election cycle has taught us, it's that it is not just our larger culture that is divided, we as Christians are divided. We're divided along socioeconomic lines and ethnic lines, and there are vastly divergent opinions on what it means to be a Christian in the public sphere. People who genuinely love Jesus and want to see his kingdom come voted for Hillary Clinton this week and Donald Trump and third-party candidates. She wrote, I think doing communion together again this week would be a visible reminder for us of where our ultimate trust and allegiance lies, in Christ and his kingdom. The communion table levels our political ideologies and viewpoints and unites us in one act of worship. In many ways, participating in communion is a political statement. It shows that no matter what our ideologies are or our gender or ethnic or socioeconomic backgrounds, we choose to be united under Christ and we choose to love. We choose to love those who disagree with us. We choose to share the bread and cup with the very people that we might view as our political enemies. And we choose to hope in Christ and his kingdom more than anything else. Oh, that was beautiful. And so because this person wrote an email to me, I talked to the staff. I said, sounds like we need to do communion again. But today we're going to do the one another version where you come and receive, and then you turn around and you serve the person behind you. And so you'll receive the bread and you'll eat it right there. You'll receive cup, either juice or wine, and you'll drink it right there. And you'll say some words to each other with the bread and with the cup. But what this offers us an opportunity to do this morning is to look in the eyes of the other person and see something more than a political party, a political ideology. To see someone made in the image of God. To see someone who deserves to be loved. To begin to be a community that removes all the things that polarizes. And to say, we're about something so much bigger. And that is about King Jesus, who gave himself for us so that we might love others like he loves.